The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Sportbox. Let's get into your headlines. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson reportedly gearing up to go head-to-head with EU leaders as vaccine exports and threats around them intensify while the continent's two biggest economies face new restrictions as cases surge. Germany preparing to extend its lockdown into a fifth month and reportedly quarantine all travellers ahead of a key meeting between Chancellor Merkel and German state leaders later today. Turkey's lira crumbles, sinking towards a record low against the dollar as President Erdogan fires the hawkish central bank governor. Profit plunges at the world's biggest oil exporter. Saudi Aramco sees a 44% slide in earnings after a pandemic-battered year, but maintains its dividends. And semiconductor group Renesas trades in the red after a major fire takes one of its chip production facilities offline for at least one month. That's hitting Japanese car makers, whilst the auto giant Stellantis is forced to delay truck production as the supply squeeze bites. A little bit of caution for US markets as they wrapped up the Friday session are pulling back from some of those big rotation stocks that have benefited the likes of the Dow. So another fall in session, seven-tenths of a percent. Uh, we did see a number of positive sessions over the course of the week, but mostly we still culminated with a negative finish for the Dow in session, but also for the week, just a pulling back by almost half of a percent, breaking a two-week winning streak for the Dow. So very much uh, investors taking stock of the strong run-up we've had in the Dow as we've chased some of those fresh records. But it did put back into contention the Nasdaq, as you saw, Fang stocks, uh, some of the big momentum stocks on the ARK Innovation Fund, back in favour. And that was a, a positive catalyst for this Nasdaq position, a bounce of three quarters of 1%. Facebook uh, having a, a big move in session, as you saw some comments from Mark Zuckerberg on Clubhouse, pushing back against some of the privacy concerns around an, an Apple upgrade that may impact tracking of some advertisers. So those comments were instrumental. But just worth noting, when you saw some of this negativity here, some of it concentrated around the likes of Visa amid concerns around uh, legal proceedings as the U.S. Department of Justice investigates the company for engaging in potentially anti-competitive practices in the debit card market. So that was a big moving stock and one to watch this week. Uh, let's just peel away and take a look at those U.S. tech names and you can see how the green was uh, splashing up across the boards. Netflix, Facebook, uh, two big drivers. Tesla stock only cautiously ahead. Not much of a move for Tesla. Amazon Alphabet are moving into the green, but Apple was uh, one stock that uh, was a little bit stop start last week and you can see in session Friday pulling back by a half of a percent. And let's take a look at foreign exchange markets. One of the big moving uh, trades has been around the lira and you can see now currently we take another check we've got a spike of 8.7 on the dollar versus the lira. We've seen a, a move of about 12 odd percent against the currency. This is the sharpest move we've witnessed since August 2018 and in response to with the President Erdogan announcing a surprise move to uh, get rid of the hawkish central bank governor on the back of uh, some rate hikes. So that news shocking the markets and creating some gyrations on foreign exchange markets. 
elsewhere, you can see the dollar is just peeling back versus the safe haven yen. But uh, the uh, risk off moves you can see very much across some of these currencies. A look at treasuries. This is how we approach as we start out the week. A real catalyst last week for investors as they are eyeing this March higher. But we've drifted off some of the slightly higher ranges above 1.7. And you can see 1.67 is where we start out the trading week. Uh, Asian markets, uh, this is the early picture. Japan, it has been pointed out that there have been some positions around the lira that has caused some concerns for a lot of Japanese investors. The market itself today trades weaker, as you can see, in contrast to some of the green you're witnessing elsewhere across on the China markets and Australia, Hong Kong, and that makes just a little bit flat, uh, not a huge amount of direction at this point. The only calls here in Europe as we uh, fell into the close on the Friday trade, we were down about three quarters of one percent. You can see it's a little bit patchy before the start. We're chasing a slight arrow of green on the Italian market, but a little bit of red anticipated for the rest of these markets that did spend Friday giving back some of the territory they had uh, claimed over the course of the trading week. Steve, good morning to you. Good morning, Karen. Plenty going on those markets, that's for sure. Right. Germany is set to extend its national lockdown into a fifth month, according to a draft paper seen by CNBC. This as the number of confirmed cases breached the threshold at which hospitals would be overstretched. Officials are also weighing up whether to impose mandatory quarantine for people returning from abroad, with all the measures set to be discussed by national and regional leaders today. Well, over half of UK adults have now received their first vaccine dose, according to the health secretary, Matt Hancock. The country administered a record in a huge, huge number, over 870,000 jabs on Saturday. Uh, Mr. Hancock hailed the vaccine rollout, saying it is the key to beating the virus. The vaccination programme is our route out of the pandemic. It will help us to protect people. And we know that these vaccines protect you. But we also know that they protect those around you and they make it less likely that others, your loved ones, will catch coronavirus too. And of course, for all of us, they're our route out. So I'm just delighted that so many people are coming forward and getting the jab. Well, Pfizer has reportedly warned the EU to stand down its threat to block vaccines to the UK amid concerns the pharma giant will be unable to secure key ingredients for its vaccine with BioNTech. According to the Telegraph newspaper, Pfizer, which sources lipid ingredients from Yorkshire in the UK, is worried that the UK could retaliate with its own export ban. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson will this week lobby European leaders to refrain from blocking vaccine exports ahead of a key EU summit on Thursday. Speaking to the BBC's Andrew Marshall, the UK's Defence Secretary said any ban would send a negative signal to the world. What should happen is that both the European Commission and the United Kingdom should live up to their obligations. You know, the European Union stands for the rule of law. We heard her also say about observing international treaties. It stands for the rule of law, and that means we should all abide by our contracts. We are legally all obliged, both the supplier and the purchaser. And we should, you know, I think the European Commission also recognises that the world's watching. You know, what, what are the values of the EU, which they profess? And, you know, if you're a country around the world and you see this type of language being deployed by the Commission, it will be counterproductive. And what we know about our manufacture of our vaccine, it is a collaborative approach. You know, the AstraZeneca IP was developed in Oxford, parts of the supply chain are in Europe, some of the supply chains in India. And I think, you know, trying to sort of balkanise or, or build walls around this would only damage both EU citizens and the United Kingdom. Uh, the UK Defence Secretary there. Well, Juliana joins us uh, with more on this. Uh, and Juliana, 
What is the expectation then in terms of how this story is going to run through the rest of the week here? Do you get any sense that the EU is prepared to pivot on its threat? So, Jeff, it's no surprise that we've got the EU coming into focus now with this threat to ban exports to the UK. Last week, Ursula von der Leyen made clear that all options were on the table and they were ready to uh, ban the export of not only vaccines, but specific ingredients because they are under such pressure to get their vaccination rollout going. And they are looking at reduced supplies relative to what they had expected uh, from AstraZeneca. And now it looks incredible increasingly like the EU will go ahead with this ban. But tensions have gone a step further over the weekend with The Telegraph reporting that Pfizer has actually weighed in here. And this is an interesting um, element because what we're looking at here is if the EU does go ahead and ban the export of vaccines out of the EU, specifically to the UK, Pfizer is concerned that the UK could retaliate and Pfizer and BioNTech are heavily reliant on the UK for a key ingredient as in their vaccines. They need an ingredient that's produced uh, by Crota, a UK chemicals company, to make their vaccines in Belgium and around the world. So they have reportedly come out to the Telegraph warning them against taking action. Now, in terms of this week, EU leaders are meeting for a summit starting on Thursday where they're expected to um, make a final decision. We've got reports that Boris Johnson is set to make some uh, pretty important phone calls ahead of that summit to effectively lobby EU leaders to uh, not to support the export ban here. And I I think what's interesting to remember here is last week we were talking all about AstraZeneca, all about the hesitancy from European leaders uh, around proceeding with the use of this vaccine because of concerns over blood clotting. And here we have Ursula von der Leyen threatening to ban the export of these vaccines because they want more of them. So the irony there is pretty extraordinary that they are uh, taking potentially such extraordinary measures to protect their vaccine supplies, uh, their supplies of the AstraZeneca vaccine. At the same time, they have uh, expressed such concern around the vaccine and uptake of the AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe is incredibly low relative to the UK. But I think um, it's important to remember here that from a UK perspective, uh, as long as the EU is behind in its vaccination rollout, the UK is going to be fairly constrained in terms of just how much it can open its economy, even as the UK a UK vaccination program gets going, because the threat of variants emerging and spreading across Europe and potentially entering the UK is a huge problem. So I expect that to become a more uh, a more pressing angle here as we move forward. The slow vaccination rollout in the EU uh, potentially having implications for the UK and other places around the world. Uh, guys, we'll hand it back over to you. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on that. Uh, the YouGov survey that we've just seen published, uh, and we'll talk more about this uh, in the program, now shows that uh, more than half the people surveyed in France, Germany and Spain believe the coronavirus vaccine from AstraZeneca is unsafe, according to this latest YouGov poll. What are the implications, do you think, of that as we look to perhaps the sharing and the rollout of this vaccine into the emerging world. I mean, ultimately, this is probably the cheapest and the most easily transportable of the vaccines available at this time. Um, Inevitably, there will be countries, I think, that will now look at this as a second class vaccine and perhaps won't implement the kind of uh, controlled rollout programs that they should do because of the doubts that have been cast. 
it's a, a hugely dangerous consequence of what went down last week with the unilateral suspensions of the AstraZeneca vaccine by more than a dozen EU countries. And EU leaders have come out defending the decision, saying that their populations are particularly skeptical of vaccines. And by taking such precautions, they're actually breeding more trust in the vaccines. Well, so far, looking at the numbers, that doesn't seem to be the case. Instead, people have begun to view this as a second-rate vaccine. When you speak to scientists, experts in the medical community, uh, that is absolutely the wrong way to think about it. AstraZeneca has been approved for use in the EU, in the UK, and by authorities around the world as a safe and effective vaccine. And people have become fixated on one number when it comes to looking at these vaccines, the efficacy rate. And number one, it's difficult to compare efficacy rates across the different vaccines. And number two, it's easy to think that we've all become vaccine experts, but the reality is there is so much that goes into these uh, approval processes, these assessments by regulators that the public uh, doesn't necessarily uh, understand. And this is by no means a second-rate vaccine. But the fact that so much attention, so much political rhetoric has entered the fray, it has made it look like that. And that has really dangerous repercussions for uptake of the vaccine, not only in Europe, but as you said, around the world, and also to countries that have done very well with their vaccination rollouts. Uh, I was reading some uh, some uh, research over the weekend out of Oxford, uh, Oxford's vaccine team, and one of the researchers there said that the biggest threat to the UK at this point is the entrance of variants from the EU because their vaccination rollout is going so slowly. Karen? Juliana, thank you very much for that. Nearly 40 people were arrested during anti-lockdown demonstrations in London over the weekend. According to police, most were for breaching COVID-19 regulations. Although scuffles did break out, MPs have urged the government to allow peaceful protests during lockdown. A similar protest in Germany turned violent with police using water cannons, batons and pepper spray after demonstrators tried to storm barricades. Nearly 20,000 people gathered to protest against COVID rules. International spectators will be banned from attending the Olympic Games in Tokyo this summer due to the pandemic. Officials say tickets bought overseas will be refunded. Travel to and from Japan will remain restricted. Uh, we're going to talk oil when we come back. Aramco saw its profits nearly halve in 2020 as the pandemic left the global oil market reeling. But the Saudi oil giant remains bullish for the year ahead. We'll talk about why when we come back. And for more on the tense of vaccine standoff between the EU and UK, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Right, well, there's a lot to unpack in these Saudi Aramco numbers. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, you'd have expected the 44% dip in net profits uh, for 2020, uh, but they've also slashed their spending plans for the year ahead after the pandemic hit fuel demand and prices collapsed. Despite the earnings slump, the Saudi oil giant will still pay out $75 billion in dividends as it banks on a strong rebound as well. Very interesting comments from the CEO, Armin Nasser, talking about the importance of China going forward, just perhaps a nod to the speed 
speed of transition we're seeing in different parts of the world and how hydrocarbons are still going to be very, very important for the fast growing Asian economies for the distant future. But let's have a, a look in now of what Dan Murphy thinks are the most important points from it. Dan, good morning to you. Hi there, Steve. Good morning to you. Well, no surprises to hear Amanasa saying that China is going to play a critical role in Saudi Aramco's future. Of course, Asia is going to be a key driver of demand into the future for Saudi Aramco. So he's very keen to appease to those clients in that part of the world. When you look at the numbers here, it is pretty clear that big oil's worst year in history could have been far worse for Saudi Aramco. What we saw was the company posting a 44% decline in net income for full year 2020, down to $49 billion. That's from something like $88 billion in 2019, so a significant decline. However, on the earnings call yesterday, you really got the sense that management was keen to press upon us that they are cautiously optimistic about the outlook moving forward, not just for oil prices, but also for the company. That's part of the reason they decided to stick to this pledge to pay out $75 billion in dividends, despite the fact that we see a fall in free cash flow and of course concerns about rising debt. When it comes to the oil price outlook though, Steve, and I know you follow this closely, Amin Nasser told us that he expects oil demand to recover to pre-pandemic levels before the end of the year. That's around 99 million barrels per day. So quite an optimistic forecast on what this looks like moving forward. At the same time, I also had the opportunity to ask him about the recent attacks that we've seen on Aramco facilities just over the past few months. And uh, what's been interesting here is to really get a sense of how the company is now strengthening some of its of security around its infrastructure, uh, critical infrastructure like Ras Tanura, for example, uh, which has been the site of thwarted attacks uh, led by Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. So Amanasa saying that it uh, is now working very hard to uh, ensure that those sites are safe and secure and to protect its staff and to protect its supply. Guys, back over to you. All right. Thank you very much indeed for that, Dan. And of course, uh, for a full breakdown of Aramco's full year results, be sure to check out Dan's article online at cnbc.com. Just taking a quick look at the oil price uh, and where we're currently trading. It's, well, again, fascinating. We'll speak to Chris Midgley about this in a few moments' time, but fascinating action at the tail end of last week. It was up against the ropes at one point, the oil price. I saw a 61 handle briefly on Brent at one point. Then we saw a very, very strong rally uh, back up to nearly 65 bucks at one stage. Currently, Brent uh, for the May delivery trading at 64.22 and the uh, light sweet crude for April deliveries trading at 61.21. And uh, those of you who have got anything like a memory will remember the April delivery last year was a little bit fruity, so to speak, uh, given the fact that we saw negative 37 bucks. So let's get to Chris Midgley, who is Global Head of Analytics at S&P Global Platts. And, and Chris, you, like I, will always be struggling with the longer-term decline of the product. And the fact is that we're never going to run out of oil now, but we will run out of oil demand. And the fact that there are shorter-term supply dynamics as well. But at the moment, we've had this big rally, bit of a pullback. Where does that leave us, Chris? Well, it does leave us very uncertain right now. And I think especially heading into the Easter period where we're perhaps heading into additional lockdowns across Europe, which is really you know, 
stimulated this concern about whether demand is going to recover in the short term. That said, the summer does look like we're going to see demand jumping and increasing by about five to six million barrels a day. And at that point, we're going to need about two to three million barrels a day more supply from OPEC. So I think Saudi Arabia and OPEC are being vindicated for their caution uh, for the April uh, supply, question is, are they going to bring the supply in as demand starts to grow again as we move into this summer? Yeah, Chris, I think you make all, all the points. I don't think you're right about Saudi being vindicated with their caution. But the problem is, and you allude to this in your notes as well, other people will want that market share as well. The Russians a little bit flaky when they see demand picking up and seeing other players, including the shale producers, uh, picking up a bit of that supply as well. The Russians aren't going to want to hang around. Can the Saudis hold the line on their own? I think um, right now the Saudis are very happy to hold it on their own. They are seeing you know, stronger revenues with oil prices up here in this sort of region. Uh, indeed, it is them who've cut back by about 35% versus Russia only cutting back by 10%. So right now, I think you know, they are holding the coalition together with Russia and Saudi Arabia staying strong. But I think as that demand recovers, as people get concerned, as you say, about the shale response to these higher prices, we're going to start to see non-compliance sort of creeping up a little bit. So there are certainly some risks risks there. Um, and right now, the big story for me is Iran. Um, obviously, we had over the weekend some pretty strong statements uh, from the supreme leader of Iran, but we're also seeing China buying a lot of Iranian oil, you know, some one million barrels a day moving uh, through countries like Oman as ways of getting that oil out of uh, uh, Iran and into China. And that's adding to supply on the prompt uh, at the moment. Chris, can I pick up on that point around the geopolitics? And we saw the, the comment over the weekend, too, the, the move by Britain to raise its cap on the nuclear warhead stockpile. There's that story, a lot of other geopolitical events happening, too. How much is in the price at this stage, do you think? It's hard to say. I mean, I think right now a little bit of that weakness that we saw was a realisation that more Iranian oil is getting into the market and into, in particular into China, which is literally just suddenly put on the brakes uh, on its current buying. It's not buying any of its Angolan crude. So a lot of crude and the West African crude is being left into the market. On the other hand, you've got the risk of these additional attacks. We've seen attacks on facilities in Iraq by uh, by Iranian-supported rebels. You've had the Houthis attacking uh, facilities in Saudi Arabia. So you've got on both sides, you've got this sort of potential risk of things uh, escalating again and potentially another you know, big attack in uh, uh, the Middle East. That, of course, gives some risk to the upside. And I think that's probably why the funds are continuing to stay mainly on the long side, the more bullish side. Demand growth in uh, summer, as well as perhaps this sort of growing geopolitical uh, tension. Uh, Chris, I, I want to get to the moves we saw last week, uh, the fall of about 7 odd percent in the price at the same time. We were seeing a lot of news flow around the European situation with vaccines, third waves starting to emerge, requiring further lockdowns, Paris and surrounding areas uh, across in France as well. We, we saw the, the added impact of the economists over the weekend slashing a lot of their growth forecasts for the first quarter and then for this year. How much of that do you think has also been picked up last week by the oil market and that 7% move south that we witnessed? 
I think it's a significant amount, but probably not yet being fully factored in. Uh, right now, I think it is very much to do with the Chinese buying. I talk about a little bit like cars on a motorway. You know, the Chinese start buying, everything starts moving up, and then suddenly they slam on the brakes, stop buying, and then the market falls off. There is certainly more negativity indeed around demand growth. And, and indeed, we're looking towards a third wave now, especially in Europe. That's going to dampen demand this Easter. But I think the summer still looks strong. Uh, we see you know, a lot of what I call social distance holidaying going to take place. People are going to jump in their cars. We see in the U.S. record sales of recreational vehicles. You have over 40,000 new sales every month. Uh, and there is certainly still a lot of money going, being pushed into the economy, creating some stimulus for people to, to spend and take those, uh, those holidays where they can. So it probably won't be good for the aviation industry, but possibly better for uh, your gasoline demand. So I think there is still a little bit of anticipation of that jump uh, of demand this summer. Chris, back end of uh, February, everybody was ramping up their price forecasts because we, we saw that dip in seaborne storage uh, for crude. I think it was an 11-month low, uh, I remember Goldman talking about. As we look at the tanker tracker data at the moment, what is that telling us about movements and about existing storage? Well, storage at the moment is relatively healthy, especially in China. And that's another reason why we saw this weakness last week. The Chinese at $70 a barrel were basically saying, we'll start drawing down our own stocks. They started buying the Iranian oil. And what we're going to see as we uh, start to move into this summer period. What's interesting, I talked about 6 million barrels a day demand growth, about a million, maybe a million and a half of that's in Asia. Five million of it is going to be in what we call the Atlantic Basin, Europe and the US. And what that means is the, the, the crude that's being produced in the Atlantic Basin, which is currently flowing to Asia, is going to stay at the Atlantic Basin. That means shorter uh, routes being used, less uh, tanker miles, and that will start to mean less oil on water. And as one of the stock measures, that also creates less implied demand. So we're starting to feel the impact of less oil flowing all the way from the Atlantic Basin to Asia. And that indeed is starting to have that impact on weaker prices. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.